In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. Dr. K. Eyre. Today we speak with Mary Gordon, founder of the Roots of Empathy program in Toronto, Canada. In 2000, she established this international program, Roots of Empathy, which now offers programs in elementary schools in and around the world, including Canada, New Zealand, the USA and Ireland. Roots of Empathy is recognised as one of the top evidence-based social and emotional learning programs. Ms. Gordon is the recipient of several awards, recognising her contribution to innovation in education and international social, social entrepreneurship, including most recently the Governor-General's Innovation Award of 2018. Mary will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy, and myself. I hope you find this interview useful. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Gavind Krishnamurthy. I'm here as always with Dr. K. Eyre. Hi Kay. Hi Gavind. How are you this evening? Oh, not bad. I'm actually quite excited. We have Mary here with us. Hi Mary. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi Gavind. Very nice to be here and hi Kay. Hello. Uh, this is great. Um, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you, so we might just jump right in. Um, Mary, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to working with educators? Well, um, my first formal job was as a kindergarten teacher. So it's kind of once a teacher, always a teacher. Um, and I realized very early on that these little children, these four and five-year-old children with whom I was working were very unequally prepared to learn. And um, I worked a lot with their parents and realized very early on, and I was a very young person at the time, that the children were powered by the love of the parents. And um, I used to have lunch with parents every single day to learn all I could about the circumstances of the child and for the parents to trust me. So I realized that the inequality of the way in which children present to school has everything to do with the family circumstances. So I, I left the kindergarten and I set up Canada's first parenting and family literacy centers. And this was in immigrant and very poor neighborhoods to be able to support parents in getting what they needed, the bread and butter issues of their lives, whether it's language classes or whether it's getting out of a domestic violence situation, so that they could be their child's first teacher. And um, so it was delightful work and research was done on it. And this was in Toronto, Ontario and Canada. And um, the research showed that we only worked with the 10th lowest percentile uh, mm -hmm. 
children who would be entering the schools which had that 10 lowest percentile. And these little children who had been in the parenting and family literacy centers, unlike their neighbors who hadn't, started school at a 50 plus. So that huge increase in school readiness in five domains, the program became public policy. Mm. So it was working with that program across Ontario, which is our biggest province, um, that we realized the incredible amount of domestic violence everywhere and child abuse and neglect. And um, so it was out of that learning that I um, started Roots of Empathy to try to go back to school, to the classroom uh, where I had started, to try and build levels of empathy in children because empathy was the missing ingredient in all the abuse and violence. So that's how I found myself back in the classroom with Roots of Empathy. Yeah, um, I'm really interested to hear about the Roots of Empathy um, program. It's fascinating. But I wanted to ask you about um, how you think about empathy. I was, I was reflecting on how you started with just having breakfast with the parents, which sounds incredibly kind of straightforward and obvious, but it's not really, not at all, because it starts from being empathic and kind mm -hmm. of curious about the parents themselves. So I was just wondering what you, how you think about empathy, Mary, um, when it comes to... Well, um, I think about empathy as having two key ingredients, and the cognitive capacity of empathy is perspective-taking. And that's something that teachers work on brilliantly every single day. And the other part of empathy is the affective side, and that's emotion. And that's where I think we can really help teachers out. So when you combine cognition and emotion, that's to me deep lasting empathy. And we know that in the brains of little children, the circuitry for emotion and cognition are inextricably linked. So um, our, our definition of empathy is the ability to understand how another person feels and to feel with them. And it's the feeling with them is the care ethic in empathy. Mm -hmm. And it fa forms the foundation of so much of the learning that the kids need to do as well, isn't it? This idea of integrating feeling and thought um, is such an important part of that. Well, I think it's wonderful because in education, there's a growing awareness um, I mean, we used to call it the whole child, but there's a growing awareness that you don't just teach things. You, number one, you reach before you can teach. And the idea is you reach through emotion, through relationship. And the incredible power of teachers to reach children. And obviously the most effective teachers are teachers who are in relationship with the children. And a relationship is an emotional connection. Mm. It's not a cognitive connection. Mm. So I think the power of learning in our classrooms is motored by relationship. Yeah, that's excellent. Mary, could you tell us about the Roots of Empathy program and um, how it was implemented in schools? Sure. Um, well, the program is experiential in nature and being an old school mom, we <laughs> are very aware that the most powerful learning is experiential. So um, the idea of Roots of Empathy is to raise levels of empathy in children. And um, 
my um, theory of, of change is that the empathy is something that we come hardwired for. It's, um, it's with everybody, but that it either blooms or fades in that first year of a baby's life. And that's because the attachment relationship, which is the template for every subsequent relationship in life, the baby learns whether or not um, they're understood and through the response of the parent. And basically, the attachment relationship is where violence starts or where love starts. So we um, bring an infant and a parent, the baby is between two and four months of age, the beginning of the program, and a local parent, and we do want a local parent, into a classroom. Uh, they're prepared by a Roots of Empathy instructor who is not the classroom teacher. It's somebody from the community. Very often it's, I mean, we used a lot of deputy teachers who wanted to do this, to have a positive way to be in the classroom. There are 27 class, classes over the school year. It's spread out. Um, so the idea is you train somebody local. There's a four-day training. There, we have a very, as a teacher, again, we have a very um, well-thought-out curriculum for all the different age grades for children up to the time where they go to high school. We don't offer the program in high school. So um, the children in the classroom... Um, when the program starts, the, the first thing that they're asked to do is to imagine that this baby is coming to see you. And how big do you think this baby will be? And what do you think this baby will be able to do? And what will make this baby different from the doll that we're going to show you? So we show them a doll. It's about the size of a two, three-month-old baby. And we get them to vote. Really, the Roots of Empathy class is a participatory democracy. We get them to vote. How many of you think the baby is going to be smaller than this doll we're showing you? How many think it's going to be the same? And how many think it's going to be, you know, bigger? And, um, you know, it's quite sweet. The very little children predict because we're working on prediction. We're working on children uh, finding their voice and having courage to speak out in the classroom. And... Um, you know, the very little children think the baby can play ball with them. And, you know, the baby basically is a beached whale at this stage. <laughs> can turn over, can talk, can barely hold their head up. It's completely vulnerable, which is what we're getting to because we yeah. want the children to find the vulnerability in the little baby so that then the instructor coaches them to find their own vulnerability. And in sharing that, they hear the vulnerability of the other. So. Um, and the humanity. So they very quickly can tell you the difference between the doll and this baby is coming is that the doll doesn't have feelings. So before they even meet their baby, they understand that what universally makes us human is our capacity to feel, not mm. our capacity to think. Mm. So, um, anyhow, so then the baby comes and the baby comes nine times over the school year. So we chronicle, obviously, the gargantuan growth of the baby in terms of physical growth. We weigh and measure the baby. They love that. But we also observe, and the children are being coached to observe, more than just the growth, the physical growth and the growing attachment relationship, but the baby's feelings and the baby's intentions. In other words, 
affective empathy and cognitive empathy. And of course, the baby is a fascinating, um, really for the children, they completely all love the baby, regardless of where they're coming from. We have autistic children who connect to the baby, who don't connect to anything else. We have huge um, love fest for the baby. So that we use the baby as a lever to help the children find their own feelings. We teach emotional literacy through the baby. How do you think the baby is feeling? Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? What did you notice? So we're teaching them to read emotion cues, not just because we want them to read the baby's cues. We want them to understand their own feelings. We want them to recognize how others are feeling. This is something that's not just important when you're seven years old. It's important when you're 70 years old. So this is something we live virtually in an emotionally illiterate world mm. where we're, we're parking cars in space and now they found salt water on Mars and we can't find another. I mean, we're really more connected than we've ever been and more lost with higher levels of anxiety and depression in childhood, a, a pandemic of loneliness. So Roots of Empathy over the whole school year introduces children to this baby, to the attachment relationship with the baby, to themselves and to one another. So, you know, the, so you have the pre-family visit where you're predicting, then you have the family visit, which is hugely experiential and the researchers say that it's the biologic embedding of this experience, mm. which is why our research shows that the impact of Roots of Empathy lasts over years. So then you'll have the third visit within the theme. There's nine themes, three classes to each theme. The third visit, obviously without the baby, but it's a very reflective visit. We're working on executive function skills. We're working on all kinds of competencies that will help the children in their overall life, not just in their classroom life, but classroom life, the community of the classroom is a huge change agent for children and um, the power of the classroom teacher, I think, is completely unrespected, disrespected, I should say, and um, not really appreciated. Um, the class, I only offer programs in schools. Everybody says, oh, but you got to come to the summer camp and we're doing this amazing thing. Couldn't you do a shortened program? We give this as a gift to the classroom teacher. There is just nobody more influential in a child's life. We do this because we want to give the classroom teacher a break to observe. You never get a break as a classroom teacher. So we negotiate with the teacher. You have to put your hand up and say you want it. No one's going to push this on you. But you also have to be available physically, mentally, and emotionally. We are going to ask you to share with the children. We are going to ask you to take this time to observe your children in a very vulnerable setting where they're sharing things that wouldn't come up in other contexts. We kind of have um, an approach to teaching Roots of Empathy that we only ask experiential questions. We do not tell the children anything. We are trying to pull from them their reflections, their feelings, you know, the poor classroom teacher is responsible for so much. Um, how the children are performing, what they know, what they understand. And we leave that completely to the teacher. 
we're concerned with what the children feel and how they're thinking about what they feel. So metacognition is a big thing with us. Mm. And um, let me stop there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just I just wanted to, uh, uh, I'm sure Kay will jump in in a minute. Um, I just wanted for people listening, there's a little video of the Roots of Empathy program that just outlines what happens uh, in the intervention. We'll put that, put that up on the website. I would encourage everyone to go watch it because... Um, as someone who's been dabbling in this field for a little while, it is incredible at how many different levels this works at. And I want to just check in with you on the different ways it works because one of the things I was really struck by, Mary, is there's so much talk about social-emotional learning, um, especially in education at the moment. And what was so powerful watching that video is the the experiential nature of it because, the, you know, you have kids, you know, watching this little vulnerable child and it's almost as though you could see their little, you know, they call it like mirror neurons in their brain, you know, all firing away, um, you know, trying to think about what this child's like. Um, and, and I wondered, you know, you talked about that, biological embedding of, of this process. I just wondered if you could talk about that a little bit because it's really fascinating. Yes. Um, well, I, I guess the thing is the neuroscientists and we, we run an annual research symposium where we bring scientists from all over the world to Toronto. And um, it's not just that they're working on roots of empathy. They ask if they can come and see a program. And uh, some of them have worked on Roots of Empathy, but for example, we had Dan Siegel just recently. And uh, we had Andy Meltzoff. Andrew Meltzoff heads up iLabs, the University of Washington, and he's completely engaged in, in brain measurements of, of children, mirror neurons, etc. And what they say is that because children are engaging emotionally with the baby and physically with the baby and I had them walk this through with me because when I started this I really have believed that of all the um, senses that touch is the most powerful in infancy and so what we do and but I think touch throughout life is very powerful and we don't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, so whenever you start a Roots of Empathy class where the baby is there, the parent holds the baby out towards the children. The children gather in a circle around the green blanket and we sing a welcome song. It could be in Maori, it could be in any language, it doesn't matter, but we sing the same tune, it's our anthem. And the baby is presented to each child. And the child has a chance to look in the baby's eyes. And we ask the mother, please count at least three seconds with each child. And the children have the opportunity, we negotiate with the mom, the children have the opportunity to um, touch the baby's feet. We ask the parents to take the socks off. The baby's feet, oh my golly, it's such a treat. Or to hug the baby's legs. And so each child has this visit, which involves, you know, multiple wiring and firing of neurons. So in answer to your question about the biological embedding, 
the children are singing to the baby. So when you sing, not only does the baby have um, the, the brain development, and of course, it's a calming influence. So you're looking at um, self-reg, which is one of the biggest problems we've got, and we're, we're addressing that big time. The baby, they learn how the baby, the mother regulates the baby's emotions so that in terms of this mirror neurons and uh, biological embedding, if the baby ever gets upset, we say to the children, because we only ask questions, what do you think the mother is doing to calm the baby? And the children will say things like she picked the baby up. Another, It's like reporting a sports match. And another child will say, well, she's rocking the baby. And another child will say, she's saying something to the baby, like, shh, 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 shh. And another child will say, you know, so they'll report physically what's happening. And we're able to unpack that for the children to say, the baby is learning through all of the senses. The baby smells the mommy. The baby can see the mommy. The baby can hear the mommy. The mommy's warmth and movement proprioception. So all of these various senses are firing and wiring to tell that baby, you're okay. Mommy's here or daddy's here. You're all right. I got your back. Mm -hmm. So the cortisol level comes down and the baby is able to reintegrate. The trouble is for the children who have had toxic stress in their lives, that relationship, that attachment relationship has not been there to help them reintegrate after they've been stressed. So their cortisol level is a high resting cortisol level. They're on vigilant, constant, chronic alert. So all the systems of their body are being harmed and exhausted by this chronic vigilance. So when the children understand how the mom is able to calm the baby down, we then have the chance to talk to them about so when the baby feels like that, we know what the mommy does and it works. What about when we feel like that? How do you know you feel like that? Because it's not just about shaping up your behavior. It's about knowing when you're stressed. It's about identifying it and then having a strategy. So we work a lot on that. So the biological embedding is taking these lessons, which we just focus the children's attention on. We don't tell them what's going on. They tell us. They tell one another. Um, they, they develop the capacity to identify the stressors in their own bodies mm. and then they identify strategies for doing with it. And, you know, it's interesting. Dr. Dan Siegel talks about how when the children in Roots of Empathy develop this capacity to be able to read the emotional cues and empathize with others, it's like riding a bike. You might not have a bicycle every year, but when you get on the bicycle, you remember how to ride it. So, um, and Andy Meltzoff talks a lot about the mirror neurons, the exchange, and that even watching uh, a parent interacting in a loving way with the baby works on the children. So that the experiences we have, um, even if you have turmoil at home and dysfunction at home, if you can spend, you know, over the school year, 27 hours or whatever, bathed in a loving relationship and bathed in an environment where anything you say will be accepted because we come from a perspective 
of intrinsic motivation. And poor teachers can't really do that. We are able to say to the children when they say something completely ridiculous, thank you, or repeat what they say and does anybody else have a different idea? So that the children have a very safe and secure way of learning and that biological embedding has a soft landing. And there's another wonderful researcher who talks about dandelions and orchids and that you're familiar with that approach? Yeah, it's a uh, lovely analogy, so you should explain it. Yeah, so the idea is temperament. And in Roots of Empathy, we talk very deeply about temperament, that there are nine temperament traits. And we discuss these traits, they're inherent, in terms of the little baby. So it's fine to say, for example, the temperament trait of intensity that our baby is very intense and that's because the baby cries easily, is very emotionally reactive, cries super loud and super long. And it makes it very challenging for the parent. It doesn't mean we love the baby any less. It doesn't mean it's a bad baby. So if a child in the class has a very, very high on the continuum of intensity, it means they will have temper tantrums if they're six years old. It will mean they feel that they're bad kids because everyone will have told them they're bad kids because they have meltdowns. It's they don't have the capacity to deal with disappointment, emotional disappointment. So this idea of the dandelion, it means children who can land happily anywhere that if you have a lot of transitions, for instance, if the classroom teacher who they adore is sick and they walk in and there's a, a supply teacher, their day is ruined, absolutely ruined. Where that's, I'm sorry, that's not the dandelion, that's the orchid. That's yeah. the orchid child who requires uh, predictability, who requires, who has a very poor capacity to, um, deal with emotional shifts who um, maybe has in terms of of the various temperament traits maybe they don't make transitions easily and um, so high intensity poor capacity to make transitions and um, so the orca child will have difficulty with change whereas the dandelion child will see this as interesting and, you know, in terms of first reaction, which is another temperament trait, some little children crave change and excitement so that if a novel situation presents itself, um, they're absolutely adventurous about it. They jump in the deep end of life, you know, the swimming pool of life. So they get bones broken, they use more band-aids than other children, and they'll have their hearts broken by the time they're 10 because they give, give, and jump, jump. Whereas the children on the lower end of the first reaction to novelty, they're mm. cautious. Mm. So they're the ones who don't want to go to the new birthday party, who don't like the new teacher, no matter how sweet he or she is. They want things to stay as they were. So um, this idea of the dandelion child, they're just very easygoing. And for them, school usually is a very happy place. For the orca child, they really need the teacher to be aware that they need warnings and extra nurturance. And if they get that, 
in their, you know, primary school, they can very often do well in other places. So it's just a, a, a sweet little way yeah. of looking. I was just thinking dandelions and orchids is uh, sounds a lot better than in some of the other labels. <laughs> we exactly. <thinking>. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, the thing is, to me, another nice thing about that metaphor is that children thrive with sunshine and watering. Mm. That um, both orchids and dandelions need sunshine and and water to grow. And children don't require very much, but they do need love. Mm. And I say love, and I say that unabashedly and unapologetically. The relationships that children have with their teacher, the children will describe it as love. Very often we've so professionalized ourselves that we don't allow ourselves to say, I love my kids. And most teachers do love their kids. They might drive them crazy. You know, there's always one or two that will give you white hair. But, you know, to appreciate that the children who are causing you your biggest grief and making it hard to do your job for the other children are the children who need you most. And we do not need time out. We need time in. They need to be in relationship with that teacher more than the other kids who are just channeling along fine. So, and I think the, you know, the wonderful exposure to the concept of adverse experiences in childhood helps us understand as teachers that children, I mean, we always know children don't do things to get you, but sometimes it feels like it, um, that their experiences, um, you know, if they've been uh, cumulatively adverse, it's not just cumulative, it's multiplicative. And the proof in the pudding is their behavior. So um, I think it helps us as adults to appreciate um, the children's behavior and to see the child through it all. And I do say love because you can call it kind regard or whatever you want to call it, but... Um, Children learn through relationships. Hmm. And if they feel accepted and treated kindly, or if they believe they're liked, um, they're going to learn. And children who feel their teachers don't like them for whatever reason, they're not going to learn from that teacher. No, no, absolutely. Um, I'm going to give Kay a chance to jump in and ask any questions. Kay, did you have any questions or comments for Mary? Yeah, Mary, yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, being a behaviour person that I am, um, I was thinking of just asking, was there quite a significant difference in what we would um, describe as a teacher that we would describe as typically disruptive little people's behaviour following the program once they've mm -hmm. been through the program, they'd developed their empathy and they'd learned all about attachment and how to calm themselves down. I'm anticipating that would have been a significant improvement in their ability to typically behave and attend in their, in their learning space. Yes, and it doesn't happen overnight. Just no, like you eat no, no. on Monday, you don't grow two feet on Tuesday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but... Um, Yes, and you can appreciate, Kay, that um, it sounds a bit bizarre to be bringing a baby into a classroom. So we had to get above the cuteness of it. 
uh, to the substantial impact on it. And teachers know better than anybody what's going on with their children. Not only do they know the children of the year, they have their previous experiences of working with children. So from the very beginning, I have insisted on having research, independent arm's length research. And actually in Australia, we have two different pieces of research done, one from Perth and, um, well, but basically both from West Australia. One was a teacher principal research and the other one was, uh, you know, deep scientific university-based uh, research. So it's interesting. I'm just looking at it now. The main finding was significant decrease in aggressive behavior compared with the controlled classrooms. So they had comparison pre and post, pretty rigorous study. That has been the same thing that came out of a qualitative phenomenological study done also in West Australia through Kane, decrease in bullying and aggression in teachers' classrooms. So teacher report. The other one was report from the children, report from the parents of the children, report from the classroom teachers, and uh, the, the pre and post. So there is without question in every single study that's been done, and we're talking, I don't know, about 12, um, the report of decrease. The latest big study done was in Northern Ireland. And in Northern Ireland, they have roots of empathy in every fifth school. It's a, right across the country. And um, they did a randomized longitudinal study, and I have to say it's, it cost over a million pounds. So it was a huge multi-year study. They did it with eight and nine-year-old children. And the history of Northern Ireland, as you can appreciate, is generational sectarian violence. And they're hugely committed as a nation to reduce the violence and to build inclusion and to break that cycle of um, behavior, which is unfortunately in many parts of the world, but they're dedicated there to try and do something about it. So what they found, they measured it as difficult behaviors and a significant reduction in difficult behaviors. So um, that's the word that the teachers wanted to use. So it's not just aggression and bullying, it's difficult behaviors. And um, that lasted over time and that study was, was presented to the world of health and education research as one of the most rigorous studies. So they also found an increase in the pro-social behavior. And pretty well everywhere we go, um, there is that increase in the way children behave um, in more caring, sharing. And we say that, you know, it's probably best observed towards the end of the year. But what teachers do observe is that children are building their emotional literacy during the year. And that's the affective part of empathy. You know, it's kind of like the alphabet for your feelings. We don't teach children the alphabet for their feelings. Yet, the first language and the universal language of our existence is our emotions. I mean, they're the same. They're our connective tissue of, of humankind is our emotions. So we are teaching the children. Um, and I mean, we, we say that um, we're not officially teaching, but 
We are helping the children learn through their experiences the names of their emotion and then having a chance to anchor that into their lived experience and then becoming emotionally literate, which is not just having the names of your feelings and understanding your own, being able to recognize them in someone else, but the final stage of emotional literacy is to be able to discuss your feelings. And that's where we have in um, most countries of the world uh, a problem. And, you know, very often young males in um, challenging societies resort to violence because they can't talk about how they feel. They don't know how they feel. They feel angry instead of frustrated or feelings hurt. So, you know, in that video that you're telling people to see, um, you know, uh, given you, you see there how the children recognize the frustration the baby is having, which allows the Roots of Empathy instructor to build on that experiential learning. So, um, yeah, the research um, is amazing because yeah. got it from all these countries and they're all finding the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I, you can totally tell <laughs> that it would have, a, you know, really impactful uh, difference on the children. Mary, I was just curious to hear, and I'm sure you have many stories of how <laughs> the program has worked for kids. Um, I, I'm thinking about some kids who have had really difficult pasts who may find watching, a, you know, a little child being cared for uh, perhaps a little difficult in terms of just reflecting on their own experience. I, I wondered if you had any stories on uh, how the program made a difference for some of those kids. Um, and I'd be curious to hear how, you know, it kind of worked over time as well for these children. Well, yes, there are many stories. And um, I mean, the reason I started Roots of Empathy was to break this generational violence. Um, so we're always interested in the most vulnerable children, but the program is not targeted to individuals. So very often we're targeted to vulnerable groups, a society, you know, where are the, the communities where we have real trouble? So I've always been particularly um, concerned about the children who are in foster care because they have disrupted attachment relationships and serial uh, attachment relationships. So tell you a story of a little one and then of an older one. So here's a story of a little child and the little boy was seven and um, the Roots of Empathy mother was leaving the classroom after the visit and this little boy has been in foster care since he was two apparently and not a not a problem in the classroom just a quiet little boy and he followed the mother out down the hallway and the classroom teacher went after the little boy and um, the mother turned around and said, to, I don't remember his name, said to the little boy, uh, did you want to tell me something? Because very often the children have special things to tell the mother or a picture they folded up into four pieces that they give the mother that they made at home for the baby and they're a bit shy to give it in the class. So he said, no, I have a question. And the mother said, yes, what is the question? I want to know where love comes from. <laughs> so he knew he was in the presence of love mm -hmm. with that. Mother. 
maybe. And, he, you know, referencing to your question, he knew we didn't necessarily have that. Mm. So, you know, people often say to me, isn't it cruel to expose children to such beautiful love? And then they go home and they have a barren experience. Yeah, but it gives them another track in their brain to know what love could be. So I have had adults come to me and tell me that because we've been doing it for 22 years. So the other story is about a boy who was in um, a seven and eight class. Uh, we only go to high school in Canada when you're <clears throat> in grade nine. So um, you're 13 in grade eight. Um, so this boy, when he was four years old, his... Um, mother was murdered in front of him. So he was put in foster care. There was no family around, absolutely no family around. And he was moved from one foster care to another to another. So by the time he got to the Roots of Empathy class in the grade seven, eight classroom, he had said that he didn't have enough fingers to count the homes he'd been in. He couldn't remember all the early homes he'd been in. And he had, I guess as a defense, he made himself look very rough and tough. He'd shaved his head. Now, this is in the late 90s. It's a long time ago. Now it's quite cool to shave your head, but we didn't shave our heads then. But he'd let the ponytail on the top look absolutely ridiculous. And he had a tattoo at the back. And I don't even know if it was a real tattoo, but anyway. And... Um, he was much bigger than the other children because the trick is when you, um, when you keep moving, you lose educational advantage. In fact, some people say that, some educators say that you can easily lose three to six months education advantage when you move. Mm -hmm. So he was behind the grades and he was at least a head taller than the other children. And so... At this class, the, um, we were talking about temperament. And the mother had said to the children, I always wanted a really cuddly baby. And who did I get? A very independent baby who doesn't want to cuddle in the snuggly, the little carry thing. The baby only wants to look out to the world, won't cuddle in. And basically acknowledging the ind individuality and independence and the rights of that baby to be who they are, which is very big on our agenda. So the bell went. And um, so the mother had explained, you know, with this, they call it a snuggly here. Um, I just wish the baby would cuddle in. So the bell went. And the mother said, would anyone like to try on the snuggly? And um, to everyone's surprise, our hero put up his hand mm -hmm. and everyone was getting their big backpacks and making a lot of noise and they were going out for lunch. And um, he came up and the mother helped him put on the snuggly and the roots of empathy instructor boldly said, would you like to put the baby in the snuggly? So the mother looked mildly horrified. So, uh, so anyway, she, she gave the baby to this boy and he put the baby in very gently, chest to chest. And that wise little baby molded to that boy. The mother could not believe it, having said what she just said. So the boy went off into the corner because it was, you know, big kids trying to leave the classroom. 
and he had his arms around the baby and the snuggly and he's doing this seasick rock. He's seen the mother do it. Mm. So he's picking up that behavior, he's doing the seasick rock. And it wasn't a long time, but the mother never broke glance, mm. um, you know, with how he was doing. And when the kids were all gone, he brought the baby back and very gently took the baby back. And in giving the baby to the mother, he said to the Roots of Empathy instructor, do you think that if no one has ever loved you, that you could still be a good father? Mm. So the, the poor mother and the classroom teacher were unable to speak. This young boy had decided he would never, ever bring a baby into this cruel world. But because of his experiences, even though he had only known cruelty and disappointment and rejection, serial rejection, he, he just saw the chance that he could love. Mm. So as hard as it is, it's important that we allow children to see one way of loving. There's no one right way to love or to parent in the world, but we know when we're in the presence of love. It's kind of like everybody loves a lover, you know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and anyone, I think, uh, and Kai could probably attest to this, even working with the most challenging kids, when you see them around, you know, are they, you know, younger kids, they often become such different people. So, you know, I think that's such a powerful story, really, about what a difference it can make in the children's lives. Mary, you know, it's hard to imagine anyone would say, no to having babies in their class. <laughs> but I, I was just wondering if you had any guidance for, you know, school leaders or principals about trying to implement a program like this that might feel really radical, might feel like a change from what's usually done. What, what has been your experience with that? Well, we've never ever had anyone say they didn't want the program. We've had people ask for it, but we don't just do um, an odd training, an odd training here and there. We go deep when we go. Um, as I was saying, we turn down basically seven to one. So we would only go to a place that has a plan. And, um, you know, they had a good plan in uh, Perth and <clears throat> in New South Wales, and they did a great job. What I didn't do, I mean, those were... Um, I think it was 2003 and four. What I didn't do is have a sound financial model for sustainability. They did everything right. They did nothing wrong. I, um, you know, it was one of our earlier, we went to New Zealand at that stage and the motivation was so pure to come to Australia. But now we've gotten smart in our old age. So we have to have a model that's viable and sustainable, both in terms of have we got a pipeline of people who will be instructors? Do we have uh, school districts <clears throat> or school boards who care about these outcomes? I mean, why would you go if people don't care about the social emotional lives of children? Um, so, and then you also have to have a, a pipeline for where will this be funded? And I mean, we're a charity, not for profit, but it still takes money, filthy lucre, to make this work. And we have a very rigorous um, um, integrity in our program implementation. We do 
training, we do mentoring, we do ongoing professional development. The instructors are volunteer, but they're on a huge learning curve and they, they stay with us. I mean, normally volunteers don't stay. Our volunteers stay because there's continuous learning. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, the idea of a principal saying we don't want it, even in places like um, New York City in the United States, where the, the poor principals are only allowed to take programs that will absolutely prove they'll increase the grade score. Um, we never say that we would do that. Absolutely, we don't claim that. We do claim a lot of other things, but we have research to prove it, right? Um, so it's not one of our goals. Even in those cases, the principals will say, oh, I only wish we could have you. And, you know, the only place we implemented in New York was um, in the children's aid schools, where the Children's Aid Society runs certain schools. And, of course, there we match up perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, what we have decided to do just in recent years is to allow private schools to have the program. <clears throat> I figured before, and I, it was not very kind of me, that they have so many other things they can offer. We'd like to give our attention to the public schools. And um, but I realized um, that the children in private schools very often are emotionally um, overwhelmed. That they have the stress, the same stress, the, mm. different stress, maybe higher levels of stress, but different mm. stress. And that anxiety is rampant. And the scary thing is, most of our leaders, if you look in the world, have come through privileged circumstances, and many of them through, through private schools. So if we want to have empathic leadership in the world that our children are growing up in, we have to allow them at the table. So they pay the full freight. <laughs> and when I started in Washington, D.C., I said, no, we're not coming. There was a wonderful private school kept asking me to come for three years. I said, no, we're not coming. I'm not coming to the capital of the United States as a program for the elite. We will come as the program for the children. And finally, they, they bought my book and every teacher had to read it for summer, like punishment almost. <laughs> and then they, uh, they brought me in and I talked to every parent, a breakfast meeting, every parent came, then sessions with all the teachers, and they agreed to help support other schools, poor schools, and that's how we did it. Yeah. So, you know, children, just, children. Just to reference what you were saying just before the we started recording, Mary, I think it's about doing few things and doing it really well, isn't it? And, and investing in it. And I think sometimes we think of programs as fixing lots of different problems when, in fact, I think something that we haven't been able to talk about, but one of the power, powerful things about the program is that it actually integrates into the curriculum as well, yeah. um, really well. And you see that in the video and um, there's resources on the website for that. I had to ask you, um, what are your thoughts about how educators can benefit from self-compassion and empathy for themselves to survive the kind of work? I was really curious about what your thoughts were about that. Well, it's so important that educators are taken care of. 
because it's kind of like they're the ones who have to put on the oxygen mask. And I headed up for the Ontario government. Um, we've been two years at it, a well-being study. And we included, um, you know, the heads of the teachers' unions. We included outside education, very big approach. And um, so we're looking at various sectors, but one of the sectors we're going to be looking at is teachers' well-being. And um, it's hugely important. And I think what comes out of Roots of Empathy, what we hear from our teachers, because um, if you agree to have Roots of Empathy in your classroom, you have to agree to give your own personal feedback. So we get feedback from the teachers. We ask the hard questions. You know, we want them to, um, to critique, basically, their experience of having Roots of Empathy. We also do the same with the children, and we do the same with the Roots of Empathy parent and the instructor, and it's all aggregated and fed back as a report. But with the teachers, what they tell us is that they, they feel more connected to their children because of Roots of Empathy, that they very often see some of their own strengths that they hadn't stopped to look at before, and they appreciate the privilege and the power of being in children's lives and being able to connect with them, to be able to help them, to be able to comfort them in some cases. So there's also research that I would love to do on um, the impact of Roots of Empathy on teachers and their own levels of empathy. Because we know that the instructors who volunteer have increased levels of empathy and um, just doing the work and doing the training. And we also offer for teachers, um, we have a, a new program, it's a three-part course on well-being. And it's on their well-being because their well-being is crucial. Um, because their emotional health has everything to do with the children's learning, with the depth of, you know, every year should be a picnic for children. And for most children, childhood is not a garden. And teachers can make that difference. It's, it's something that I, I deeply care about, the well-being of teachers. And we find that teachers who have roots of empathy have pause they can you know they sit back and they're with the children and they're making observations and particularly when we're talking about all the temperament traits the teachers think of themselves and they give themselves permission and one of the sweet things we often hear from teachers because the children learn to read emotional cues they learn to read their teachers emotional cues just like teachers can't change anything about themselves like earrings or or wearing a different suit jacket or whatever the children notice but now with this new tool they have of being able to read emotional cues we have teachers telling us that the kids might say to them are are you mad or are you sad or what's wrong and we typically say oh nothing <laughs> <laughs> The kids will say, but your eyes look worried or your eyes look sad or your eyes look mad. Or So the children really become closer to their teacher. Right. And I think 
the teachers are so taken that their worst actors are, <laughs> are very tender with the baby. Yes. And that they feel more forgiving of the, the, um, the inappropriate behavior, you know. Yeah, I was thinking that's when you think you've done your job too well, when they can read you too far. <laughs> <laughs> you may regret it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mary, this has been such a privilege. Um, we've had, uh, yeah, and, and it's such an incredible resource um, for you sharing this knowledge. I was wondering about what you're currently curious about with your work and what you've been thinking about. Well, um, I'm super interested in executive function. And we have literally worked that um, into our curriculum in that, um, you know, it's, it's no good to look at decision-making at the end of the game when you haven't looked at all of the things that lead up to making responsible decisions. And typically the poor high school teacher says, these kids haven't got the first clue about how to organize themselves, make really bad decisions. And my feeling is that, the way we organize our curriculum, and this is mainly in the pre-family class and the post-family class, that um, we've put activities and reflections in there that give children the beginning of how to, under, how to um, manage uh, their emotions. So, I mean, the second thing I'm really cu curious about is self-regulation or emotion regulation. So these executive function skills, which are never taught discreetly, we intentionally work on it. I mean, as simple as this. For the kindergarten children, we say to them, okay, our Roots of Empathy baby is going on an outing. What do you think the parents should put in the diaper bag? So you are getting them to sit, reflect, talk with one another, well, where are they going and what might they need to get there? It's a different kind of thinking. Um, and it's the kind of thinking that is also developed through uh, free play and imaginative play, that you are organizing what you're doing and what you're thinking. And there's no right or wrong answer, you know, about what this happens. But, you know, the, the, all of the, the five various pieces of, executive function have everything to do with the child's ability to learn in school. They have everything to do with the child's ability to relate to others. And um, I think there is a connection between self-reg and executive function. And those are things that teachers are concerned about, but it's, there's not a discrete course in how to do it. So we are trying to embed it, and I'd love to work with teachers. Um, teachers see more than just about anybody in the world. They are more aware of vulnerability than any of the shrinks you want to see. They see, and they can see long-term, you know, because they see what happens to children. They can tell you which child is going to be on the front page of the newspaper for a bad news story. So I, I think those are the things that I'm most curious about. I'm very interested in research yeah no that, that sounds fascinating thank you so much mary I'll, I'll get kay to pop in and see if she had any final questions or comments but thank you very much for your time kay did you have any questions or comments for mary just just a comment that it's um so so, so wonderful to see that we're talking about 
the foundation, empathy, that comes before we get caught up in teaching social emotional skills, which seems to be our focus um, a lot of the time. And where, you know, our curriculum says, you know, you teach social emotional skills, build up resiliency. And you know that empathy belongs in there somewhere, but you're not really sure how to do it. And it's a bit, you know, like, oh, it's a bit hard to define. So I think it tends to get lost and it's just, well, it's just will happen by osmosis if I do the social emotional skills. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's wonderful that it's being articulated as so foundational and so important and, and it's the basic building block. And I think unless somebody points that out to us, it's not necessarily that obvious. So it's really mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you, Mary. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. And, you know, um, people often think, oh, great, I'll order up a neighborhood baby and have them come in and visit. It's, you know, there's 638 pages of curriculum. There's a philosophy and knowledge base. There's, um, it hopefully, like any art, should appear effortless. Um, but there, for example, in the pre and the post, and I... I just want to say that out loud because it would be very disappointing for people if they just brought a baby in and thought the children are going to be emotionally literate overnight, stop fighting and all those things. So it is, I guess, a lifetime of learning at the foot of the family and at the foot of teachers that the two institutions in the world that have the strongest impact on our developmental health and wealth is the family and education more so than the healthcare system, they're all fixer-uppers. Um, education, and I mean, Nelson Mandela said that. He called me along, well, when he got out of prison, he invited me to South Africa because he realized that for him to turn around the incredible um, legacy of apartheid in South Africa, yes, they needed healthcare, but he said, without education, we're going nowhere. And he understood that the education of the mind and the heart as the Dalai Lama, right? Calling roots of empty mother's milk. So all to say, it's a dance. And it, um, it's a program that only works when the, per the school wants it or the teacher wants it. So um, babies are adorable and they should visit as often as not. Not to make the connection that it will have these these outputs. So yeah. I enjoyed talking to you and uh, wish you well. Thanks, Mary. Was Thank there, you very much. Were there any websites or resources that you wanted to just point people to just before we finish? Oh, yeah. You know, there's, um, there's a BBC World Hacks. It's on the front page of our uh, website. And it's interesting because BBC from the UK came to our center of excellence in Toronto. I mean, they came all the way. We have programs in the UK. We have programs in London. So they came and they did this video and um, it's four minutes long and it really gets to, it, it interviews children, but it also gets to the philosophy behind Roots of Empathy and why in the world at this point, you know, I talk about the landscape of childhood, how it's completely changed, but children haven't changed. 
they're still as emotionally pure and vulnerable as they ever were. So I think that would be, um, if you can see it on the, the head of our uh, website, um, that could be a very good way for people to understand the guts of what we're doing. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put up the website uh, and the video as well um, with the interview. Thank you very much, Mary. This has been a real privilege um, learning from you. Thank you. Thanks. That was our interview with Mary Gordon about her Writs of Empathy program. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.